Father, we come before you. We thank you for this day, this Palm Sunday, the Sunday of triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. We would ask, Lord, that you would fill us full of insight and wisdom and pray that we would just add to our faith a little bit, knowing that you have pre-planned all of this uh, for the pastime as well as for what lies ahead in the future for all of us. We would ask, Lord, that you would build our faith because of these events that took place so long ago. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our day today, not only in church here with the Fellowship of the Saints, but also the time we get together for baptism. May it be a blessed time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, it'd be a good idea to open it up to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to go through verses 29 through 42. And of course, this is Palm Sunday. And I'm going to explain what that is and its significance. But Luke chapter 19, verse 29, is just one account because this is in all four Gospels. All four accounts have this particular event. Verse 29 reads, As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the Its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So this is the event known as the triumphal entry, or what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. It is, or it's something that takes place seven days before the resurrection. It was an event that was prophesied by the prophets Zechariah and Daniel, approximately five to six hundred years before it would take place. Jews in the city of Jerusalem were giving praises to Jesus, whom they thought would deliver them from the rule of the Romans, and they waved palm branches and placed them as well as their cloaks on the roadway as he approached the old city of Jerusalem and shouted things like we just read, but they are blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They yelled Hosanna in the highest. They called out Hosanna to the son of David and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were just lauding on him all kinds of praise. And of course, this made the Pharisees just have their hair catch on fire they couldn't stand this and that jesus would receive praise from the people and they ordered jesus to make them stop and of course we just read how he replied says i tell you if they keep quiet the stones will cry out i don't know how exactly they would have done that if mouths would appear on the little rocks 
there and the little rocks singing out in high soprano and the big rocks in low and low and they started singing like that. But it would have been a miracle to behold, certainly. Now, the people were so excited that finally the Messiah that they had been expected had finally arrived and they would have him restore Israel to its previous glorious state under the rule of King David and King Solomon, his son. That was a glorious time in Israel. They were at the pinnacle of their um, palatial estate and the wealth that was there and the people, the happiness that was amongst the people. God just blessed it. And in just a few days, the people who had been elated to receive the Christ, God's chosen deliverer, they would be screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Just in a few days, that would be happening. So how did this happen so quickly? Well, I kind of posed this in five different questions. These questions are, who was this Jesus, the Messiah or the Christ? Messiah is the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek term. What was his purpose in presenting himself to the Jews in Jerusalem? Why did the Jews and his own disciples turn on him and abandon him so quickly? What was the end result of the first seven days leading up to the resurrection? And what does it mean for us today? Because after all, this event took place 2,000 years ago. There's not many events that affect us that are so old. Well, the first question, who was this Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, wasn't he just a carpenter? Now, there's two passages in Scripture that say he was a carpenter. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it reads, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? The word that is used here for carpenter is tecton. Now we get our word architect or chief builder. That's where we get our word. <coughs> our current word architect is from this original Greek word. We do know that Jesus was not a farmer. He was not a politician. He was not a tax collector. He was not a soldier. But in short, this word tecton, it doesn't mean carpenter. It means any one of several different kinds of trades. You could be a blacksmith, a carpenter, a stonemason, a craftsman, an artisan, a builder, and it's mostly associated with construction. So this carpenter or a carpenter in the days of Jesus would have been an individual that made furniture for inside the house. They would have had maybe a limited role of putting some beams up or some boards or some poles up for top of a roof. And usually on top of that roof, you'd have some type of thatch or um, tall grasses that would be out there, kind of like a, a, a palapa. If you guys know what a palapa is, you go down to Mexico, it's just one of those umbrellas and it's like a, a grass canopy that's there. And, and so somebody who is a carpenter would have made mostly furniture, tables and chairs and bed frames and things like that. Because most of the buildings that were constructed were made out of stone. They weren't, they weren't made like our houses today. We make them out of lumber. And that would not have been the case with Jesus. Now, there may be some further evidence, a hint, that Jesus was actually not a carpenter, 
but a stonemason. I don't know if you've never heard, ever heard this before, but I, I didn't realize this. I'd kind of heard it in the past, but I was doing some research and I came across this again. First of all, the town of Nazareth, it would not have had a forest around it. It's pretty bare. You go there today, and I think we're going to be going through there. It's pretty much stone. There's a lot of rock that is showing out everywhere. There could be some trees because people plant trees, but it really wouldn't have been a wooded area. As we're going to drive through Israel, you will see areas that they have planted with forests, and they're like cutouts it's like this square area is going to be a forest and they planted those trees so close together that it's actually a fire hazard and some of the arabs who are terrorists over there they decided they're going to set them on fire and that has been a problem in the past but there are trees everywhere now and when mark twain visited the land there was nothing absolutely nothing there and in the days of jesus in the town of Nazareth, there wasn't a forest that was there. Now, outside of the town, about a mile away, there was also a large stone quarry, a very big stone quarry. And within a one-hour walk of Nazareth, there was, <clears throat> at the time, Jesus would have been about nine years old. There was Herod Antipas, and he instigated or initiated a large-scale building program in Sephoris that was about four miles away. And it lasted for 20 years. And so the people in Nazareth were probably working on that site that would have been one of the closest cities to this area. And they would have been certainly involved in the train of stone cutting. They would have done that. Now, if Jesus was a stonemaker, it would shed some additional light on some of the events of Scripture. And you might say, well, how do you mean? Well, for example, myself. I have been involved in the landscape industry as long as I can remember, probably since 1970 or 73. I've been doing that. And, of course, I I work in that industry. And whenever I go someplace that's either old or new, that has just been put up and has been landscaped, I always look at it. Like when I, I go into Disneyland, if I'm ever at Disneyland, the first thing I look at are the elms. There's big elm trees that are right there and they've been there for i don't know 50 60 years and i just admire the way that they have pruned those because i i like the pruning that they do and i've learned how to do it and i just marvel at some of the ways they take care of the landscape and of course the landscape in disneyland you look at it you go wow, everything is completely manicured you have the topiary that's in there and the adventure land and just all the way through they use different type of plant materials And when I go to an arboretum, I look at the arboretum, I go, wow, that's an interesting plant. Look what it does and look at the shape and form and stuff like that. Now, if I'm with somebody, especially somebody else who is in the industry, if we go somewhere, we stop and go, wow, look at this Japanese garden right here. If you go to Balboa Park, in Balboa Park, there's a Japanese garden that goes down in the valley that's behind the Oregon Pavilion. And it's just spectacular the way that they do that or the arboretum that's there in Balboa Park. I look at that and just go, wow, that's amazing. And if somebody is with me and they look at that, they'll say, hey, what do you think about this? And they're not a landscaper and they're not involved in that. They'll say, what do you think about that? Wow, that's really cool how they did the water feature. And oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. So people will comment about that. Or what if you're a car enthusiast 
And you go down in El Cajon, I think on Wednesdays, I don't know if they still have it, but they had the old cars. And you had, you see these old guys walking around like this, and they're looking at the cars, and go, oh yeah, look at that, that's a, a Plymouth Falcon, you know, or a Ford Falcon, whatever it is, and look how nice it is. And they just kind of marvel, and they kind of hit each, oh yeah, I had one of those, you know, or 56 Chevy, you know, something like that. You just kind of marvel and you comment to each other because you know the other person or you might be an enthusiast. Well, if you remember in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, Teacher, what beautiful buildings these are and look at the decorated stonework on the walls. You know, and if Jesus was a stonemason, you know, Hey, Jesus, look at that stonework, you know, and they marveled at that. Another translation says, as he walked away from the temple, one of his disciples said, teachers, look at the stonework, those buildings. And it, they're just marveling at the stones. They're going, look at those stones, how those had to be cut. You go to Israel today in the old city, everything is made of Jerusalem stone. That's what they have up there. And they're fortified, you know, because of terrorists and everything that are there. But that's the stone that occupies the city there. Now, Jesus was referred to as what? A rock. So he's a rock. His disciples are looking at the stones and marveling at the stones. They say, Jesus, look at the stones. In Romans chapter 9 in verse 30, I'll just read this section of scripture here. It says, well then, what shall we say about these things? Just this, that God has given the Gentiles the opportunity to be, a, a, excuse me, to be acquitted by faith, even though they had not been really seeking God. But the Jews who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the laws never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to be saved by keeping the law and being good instead of depending on faith. They have stumbled over the great stumbling stone. Who's that referring to? That's referring to Jesus. God warned them of this in scriptures when he said, I have put a rock in the path of the Jews and many will stumble over him, meaning Jesus. Those who believe in him will never be disappointed. And so Jesus is referred to as the rock, they're mentioning the stones. He comes from a town that has a stone quarry. All the buildings are made of stone. They may have some wood in the, uh, the rafters up in that area, <clears throat> but that would be the extent of it. Also, Jesus is referred to as the spiritual rock. In verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And you, you see the imagery which is being portrayed. Now, if Jesus was a stonemason, he's, he's called the rock. He is the spiritual rock. He's the stumbling rock. He is also the chief cornerstone. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, you have never read in the scriptures or have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Not only that, but Jesus is referred to, and we are referred to, as living stones. Who's building the church? Jesus is. He's placing one stone at a time. 
We are just like Christ. We are called Christians. He is a rock. We are living stones. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So you see all this imagery, these metaphors that are there for stones, and it would make sense that Jesus, the word that is used, tecton, is really for a builder, not just a carpenter. And again, you put the city with that. Have you ever, let's take the flip side of that. Have you ever seen Jesus referred to in scripture as a beam? No. Have you seen him referred to as a sturdy table? A good end table? No. Have you ever seen him referred to as Jesus our spiritual lumber? You haven't seen that anywhere in Scripture. There's really not a lot of metaphors. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is the beam in your own eye. Take that out before you get the speck out of your brother's eye, and that's in a negative context. But whenever it's used of Jesus, he is our rock. He is the foundation, and it's all stonework. So do we go with the translators that said Jesus was a carpenter? Well, you can. You can do that. But I think there's a little bit of evidence that Jesus is simply a builder and maybe even a stonemason. And he's using us as spiritual stones to build his church. So he was a tradesman. We can just say that. He was a tradesman. Remember last week I was talking about the patricians and the plebes? And Jesus would have been considered a plebeian. Somebody who was lower class that was just working in a trade that would have a lowly position, nobody of great report, that type of thing. So he came as a lowly servant. And we know this is talked about in Philippians chapter 2. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature or form of a servant. Now, he's also called the Lamb of God. So first he's a tradesman. Then he's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said this in John chapter 1, verse 29. Now, just because he was John the Baptist, he didn't belong to the Baptist church. He was a Jew. Uh, he just was baptizing, and so they called him John the Baptizer. But why the Lamb of God? Of course, this is a reference to Jesus when you talk about the Lamb who went to the slaughter in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. It says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, what lamb is this really referring to? Well, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. There's an example in Isaiah of a lamb who does not open its mouth, even when the shears are handling it and giving it a haircut. But this refers to Passover in Exodus chapter 12. There is a lamb that was sacrificed, and this metaphor of the lamb that is used to bring salvation or keep alive the Jews in the land that is transferred to Jesus, that he is the same one. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of the lamb that kept the people alive, that gave them life. In the New Testament, it is the blood of the lamb, Jesus, 
who keeps us alive, who gives us eternal life. And so this metaphor is used, and there's all types of imagery which is used in the Old Testament to point to Jesus Christ. So Jesus, he was a tradesman. He was the Lamb of God. He was the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man. He was a healer. He was a rabbi or a teacher. He was a friend of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He was a miracle worker. He was a truth teller. And most importantly, he was God manifest in human flesh. That's who he was. This is the individual that presents himself to Jerusalem. Now, if you knew the Messiah was coming, if you knew Jesus was going to show up today, he was going to be at the baptism. By the way, he will be at the baptism, but you just won't see him. But what if he showed up in the flesh, came in the door? What would you do? Fall on your face with your mouth open wide? Like if somebody walks in and claims to be Jesus, first you're going to go, really? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, you're Jesus. Like, yeah, let me show you. And he parts the pool and he walks through the pool, something like that. And you go, what? It's really him, you know? And he starts teaching. You'd be pretty elated. You would hear some hoots and some cries and like, Jesus, do you want something to eat? I don't know what to say exactly, but I'll, I'll, hey, I'm just here. Maybe I'll be quiet and listen to what you have to say. You'd get all nervous. It would just be a fantastic thing. And that's what the people thought in Jerusalem when Jesus is coming down towards the uh, Kidron Valley and going going to go up towards the the Temple Mount area there. They're just excited. And so they're they're reaching up in the palm trees. They're cutting the palm trees. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're, They're just rejoicing. They're happy. They're running alongside Jesus as he's on the colt, as it's going down. And the disciples are saying, come on, a little bit of room here, a little bit of room, letting Jesus go through. And, of course, the Pharisees are all stoic, standing along the pathway, just with disdain, what's going on, can't stand it. And, of course, we know that Jesus is weeping as he starts going towards Jerusalem. And he loves the city. It's the city of his father. It's where the Holy Spirit dwelt inside the Holy of Holies that was there. And and Jesus was going up there, greatly saddened. Everybody else is rejoicing because he knows what lies ahead. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, we, we are told that he was God manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And of course, Jesus is the word of God. And that's the most important thing that we want to keep hold of. So the second question is, what was his purpose in presenting himself to the Jews in Jerusalem? Well, again, the, the imagery that is there, the foreshadowing of the Passover lamb, there's foreshadowing metaphors and similitudes. They're used throughout the entire Old Testament to point to Jesus at his first coming, as well as his second coming. But we're just dealing with the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. And it, he was prophesied to come by other prophets that would he would show up and one of them was given by Moses. This prophecy was given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He said, another prophet is going to come and he's going to be just like me. And what that meant was he's going to be a leader, speak the word of God, do miracles, that type of thing. And he goes, when he shows up, listen to him. And of course, they didn't do that. And there's several reasons why they didn't do that. But also Zechariah, he's the one that prophesied about the colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, it says, Rejoice greatly in Zechariah 9.9, 9, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Jerusalem, the daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious. Is he humble and riding on a donkey on the colt of a foal of a donkey? And this is recorded for us being fulfilled in John 12.12. 12. 
And then this triumphant entry. I'm going to read it here. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So as they were going through the Old Testament scrolls, of course, they had rolled them open. They go, well, that refers to Jesus right there, too. And they, they were discovering these things because they experienced Jesus. But everywhere they looked in the Old Testament, they would have seen him more clearly after the fact, have you ever heard the phrase hindsight's twenty twenty? When you're looking back, you wow, we missed it. it. It was right that we should have seen this coming, like the road uh, to Emmaus. You know, going on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples that were there, they, they didn't realize until after he revealed himself, oh, we should have recognized him before when he was walking with us along the way. We should have seen that. And that's what the disciples were doing at that point. So Zechariah prophesied about him. Also the prophet Daniel. Now this one I bring to you every Palm Sunday. This one is critical. Anybody who would have been a Jewish leader uh, scribes the Pharisees they would have understood this passage they knew that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem but they mistakenly thought that he came from Nazareth of course he was born in Bethlehem and he ended up in Nazareth after going down to Egypt for a while because Herod wanted to kill all the babies at the time Jesus was born but in Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 we know that there was a decree that was talked about hundreds of years before it actually took place and it reads, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And that, that's just a fancy way of saying there's going to be a total of 483 years from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes and is cut off. They could count the years. They could even count it to the actual day. The Coming Prince by Sir Walter Anderson, who worked with Scotland Yard, he put this together going back with the calendars, the 360-day calendar instead of our calendar. <coughs> and he was able to calculate it to the exact day. And the Jews would have been able to do this as well. It was 173,880 days from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus issued on March 5th, 444 BC. And they could have just counted. And that was the exact day Jesus showed up. Now, that's quite a prophecy. I want you to tell me what you're going to be doing 10 years and three days from now. Try doing it hundreds of years before it happens. You know, you can try to make something like that come to fruition, but there is no way you could possibly do that and fulfill all of these other prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus showed up. And so that's something to behold. So what was the purpose in presenting himself to the Jews in Jerusalem? It's so that they would know he was the Passover lamb, that he was the other prophet according to Moses that he was the king who would be riding on a donkey according to Zechariah and he would be the anointed one spoken about in Daniel that's why he went to Jerusalem that's why he was riding on that donkey is to tell the Jews the Messiah has arrived 
And of course they rejected him. Now why did the Jews and his own disciples turn on him and abandon him so quickly? Well, we know that there was this underlying jealousy and envy that they possessed, these leaders of the Jews, just like the patriarchs. If you remember the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob or Israel, who did they really despise? Joseph, the second to youngest son. They despised him so much, they sold him into slavery. Jesus was despised so much, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, Judas's motivation, we don't know exactly what his motivation was. I've told you before, I think he was contemplating in his mind that he could force Jesus's hand to become the Messiah, the ruler in Israel, and put down the Romans. Uh, that's just my opinion. <clears throat> but the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the ruling class, they just despised Jesus because he had this huge following that would come. You know, Gamaliel was a teacher at that time in Israel, and I'm sure he would have been privy to a lot of the teaching of Jesus. He would have showed up. Jesus showed up in the temple courts, and he was teaching in the temple courts, and Gamaliel would have been there, the school of Gamaliel, and he probably came in there just like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, known as Saul at that time, probably stood on the outskirts listening to Jesus teaching in the colonnade of Solomon that goes around the temple area, and they would have just sat on the outside just listening to what he had to say. And, of course, Paul would have been one of those that just said, you know, this guy, he's, no, we don't like him. And he just had this evil thought in his heart. It came to fruition where he started persecuting the church. But Gamaliel, he ends up giving a defense for the disciples of Jesus, saying, you know, if you're opposing these men, that's one thing. But if you could be opposing God in these men, that's a whole nother ball game. Just let them go. If they are of themselves, nothing's going to happen. And so it seems like he's making a defense. And there are some later uh, recordings, writings that say that he's probably a Christian, Gamaliel, just like Nicodemus, probably in the same boat. <clears throat> and so it, there was jealousy and envy, just like the patriarchs were jealous over Joseph and we know that Matthew chapter 27 verse 18 says, For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. They, they were just envious. Now remember there's jealousy and there's envy. Jealousy is, I don't like what you have because you have it and I want it and I'm going to make sure I hurt you because I don't want you to have it. I want to put you down. And envy is just like, well, I really want that. I wish he didn't have that. But, and Jesus had all these hundreds and hundreds of followers wherever he would go. Remember, his ministry was mostly around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum and Bethsaida, uh, Tabca up there, just all of those areas, uh, Tiberias, um, the, the town that's up there. And we'll be going up there. But that's where Jesus had his ministry was around the lake. And every once in a while, he'd show up in Jerusalem and word would be be transferred from the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem and the, the Sadducees and Pharisees go, who is this guy? How's he getting all these followers? And so they were jealous of him and envious. So this was also a fulfillment of prophecy, which I've mentioned several times. And of course, Jesus was betrayed, but this all had taken place according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. This had all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is when he's being arrested. They, they go and get him. They turn on him because of the jealousy. The disciples are afraid 
They're just going, what's going to happen to us? And they all split. Of course, Peter was incognito. He kind of hung out on the backside, just followed at a distance. And John, we know that he was probably a relative of the high priest. And he would go inside and kind of figure out what's going on. But everybody else left. We know that John Mark, who was probably there, he, he ended up leaving, running away naked. You know, from the, the place, there was such a turmoil going on there. And <clears throat> Peter cut off the priest's excuse me, the servant of the high priest's ear and Jesus put it back on, just kind of mayhem going on at the arrest of Jesus. And that comes in just a couple of days from this triumphal entry. And also we know that Satan had a part in this. He was wanting to stop the plan of God and he has always been working to do that. Just as Satan opposed Jesus, just as Satan opposed the Jews, he opposes us today. There's a history of harm coming to the Jews and even to Adam and Eve, you know, coming to them. They were deceived by the serpent, by Satan himself. And of course, that led to the fall, the original sin, which we are all under. And from the fall in the garden to the flood, remember uh, Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 deals with the flood. The entire earth was corrupted at that po- time. We think it's the genetic uh, code was was corrupted because the Nephilim and the, the fallen angels coming down and cohabitating with the daughters of men and having children. They were the, the heroes of old, the men of renown, the huge giants that were in the land. <clears throat> and also the earth got so bad again, you know, after the Tower of Babel, then you had Abraham. <clears throat> There's only one guy that God went to. Okay, you're it, Abraham. You're going to be the one. But everybody else had been pretty much corrupted. They were all idolaters. Then when, of course, Pharaoh, he tried to wipe them out. He got so angry with them. He was going to go and crush them by the Red Sea where he thought that they were stuck. And, of course, God, he fought for them. And then the Amalekites and the Moabites, I believe, were used by Satan to attack the Jews as they were wandering in the wilderness. And then the, uh, before that, or after that, the Syrians and the Babylonians came in and just devastated the Israel's, uh, Israelites to the north and the, the northern kingdom and the, uh, uh, the Jews in the south, the land of Judah. And, of course, you go more modern day, Satan used who? Well, first, I think he used Karl Marx, which influenced Mao and Hitler and Stalin, it's like, let's just get rid of these Jews. They're a pain with us. And today it's the Gaza Strip and Hezbollah and, and the, um, the people who are fighting for Iran that just want to get rid of the Israelites. They want to drive them into the sea or just nuke them. And so there's a lot of anti-Semitism today that's coming up. It's, it's more today than it has ever been. And that is Satan who is working at that. Just like he worked at that back then, he's working at it now. So why did the Jews and his own disciples turn so quickly? Jealousy, envy, the prophecy. We knew this would happen. He would be cut off. And the satanic influence. The fourth question. What was the end result of the first seven days leading up to the resurrection? What did it accomplish for the Jews and their leaders? Well, I think it helped solidify the resolve of Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders to have Jesus killed. Right before... John chapter 12 is John chapter 11. And that is where Caiaphas, he prophesied. Now, Caiaphas, I don't think he's a believer. I think that he was used by God. But 
God had him prophesy something that was true. He says in John chapter 11 verse 50, You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And right before this, they're having this conversation. And the Jews, they're jealous. They go, look at this. Everyone's going over to Jesus. What are we going to do if he keeps this up? Everybody's going to be saved. And we're going to be kind of on the outs. That's Bill's version uh, that I'm talking about there. But that's what they were doing. They were arguing amongst themselves. And Caiaphas says, ah, it's better that one man die for the nation because there's going to be an uprising. We need to take out this guy. And that was a prophecy that it tells us in Scripture, God had him prophesy, Caiaphas prophesied, that Jesus would be the one who would die. Now, Jesus was also a thorn in the flesh to the leaders of the Jews. I mean, every time they tried to oppose him with some teaching, and that's what they were good at. They just, they wanted to put him down. They wanted to say, no, you're nothing, and we're something. And they were hypocrites all the way. Remember the six woes that were delivered against the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. He goes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Six different times. If you, if you went up to somebody, it would be like the equivalent of saying, you are going to die because you are cursed because. And you said that to somebody. That's what Jesus was doing to the leaders. Now, he probably was sitting down teaching and he ends up pointing to them probably on the outskirts. They wouldn't have been right up front, front row, you know, sitting there going, oh, this is so good. No, they would have been in the back just going, what is he doing now? I got to think of something to really cross him up and make him just trip up over his words. And Jesus just starts pointing them to woe to you and woe to you. And it's like, oh, man, completely embarrassed. And you could see the common people, the plebes that were around just going, Oh, this is getting good. You know, back and forth when Jesus was doing that. Oh, he teach with such authority. It's not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. I would have loved to have seen that exchange. It's like when you see a good debate and the person loses because they just don't have a good argument. It, it's kind of satisfying to watch that. Now, I'm a regular viewer of debates like on YouTube. I, I like seeing how atheist and creationist and uh, Calvinism and all those different things. I like to watch that and see how people fare with one another in a debate. And it would have been no debate with Jesus. When he was finished speaking, there was nothing left to be said. And so not only did Jesus do that, but the day after he showed up in this triumphal entry, he goes into the Temple Mount area and he looks around. He just views what's going on and he leaves back for Bethany, goes back to Bethany. The next day he comes in and what does he do? He turns over the tables of the money changer. So I have to explain that for those who don't know. <clears throat> what, what they did is they rebuilt, Herod rebuilt the temple complex. He really expanded it. And in the area that was outside the courts, they had animals ready for sacrifice. That if you came to Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to bring your own sacrifice. You could bring money and you could buy a sacrifice. But you had to use the right money. You couldn't use the Roman money, which was a little downgraded silver. It wasn't as quite as pure. Or you could use the temple shekel, which was more pure. It was an acceptable form of silver to use to buy your sacrifice. So you just bring the money. You don't bring the animal. And if you brought the animal, 
they would get the used car, or excuse me, the used animal dealer out there and say, oh, I don't know, this, uh, kick the tire, kick the hooves, and ah, it's not quite right, and oh, look at this bent ear. And I, I tell you what, we'll take this off your hands for half the price, okay? And we'll, you know, we'll put this one over on this side, and, but we have this new, brand new model, 2023, right here, this ewe lamb that is available for sacrifice. Come look at it, just look at the wool on there and how nice it is, and, and it doesn't make a sound, it's gonna be the perfect sacrifice for you and of course they would say now we can give you this for the low price of two shekels and the two shekels oh that's a little steep I don't have quite that many shekels well I tell you what we're, we'll walk away for a minute and you think about it you and your wife you think about this in the meantime if you think you want to buy it go over to the table and exchange your money for the temple money which was a huge markup on the exchange when we go to Israel you're going to have to change out for shekels and there's going to be a huge markup and then you go back and you buy the animal with the temple shekel that you turned your money in to buy and of course they became filthy rich doing this because everybody thousands and thousands of people would come and have to exchange their money or they would take that animal that you brought and they would move it around the back and when you left they'd bring it back in the pen and say oh we have a new model here and they would just this deceiving was just going on they made it into a huge racket a den of robbers is what Jesus called it and he was just in the vernacular of our day he was ticked he was mad that the Jews had turned the temple into a place of merchandise and so what he decided to do now this is the second time he did it the first time he did it listed other places in the gospel he made a whip now when I've looked at this before some I've said before that he used the whip on the people and the animals some people said no he didn't use it on the people he used it on the animals could you see Jesus using it on the people maybe I mean if if they're standing in the way get out of my way you know and he comes up there and he cracks that whip probably had a couple of tails on it and usually there's some, a weight on the end of it and and he was just cracking that thing <clears throat> and he was driving the people out and this is the second time he shows up it's kind of like, I thought I told you. You know, he, gets, he turns those things over, and they would have been big marble tables, big stone tables. And he just goes up there. Of course, being God, he could just go like that, and they would just go right over if he wanted to. But he was mad. And talk about a thorn in the flesh. And all the money goes everywhere in the temple area, and all these money changers had to pick it up, and how inconvenient, and oh, hey, they go to the high priest, what is this guy doing? We've got to do something about him. We can't have him in the temple courts anymore. And, and so you could see how this was just brewing. Jesus showing up, and this is what he did. So the result of the triumphal entry and the days surrounding the events, what, what was the result? Well, it got him crucified. This really solidified, we're going to do something about this guy. We're going to take him out. And Judas was the one who facilitated that. So what does this mean for us today? Because all of this took place 2,000 years ago. It's a good story, you know, and I'm hoping the chosen does uh, uh, this good, you know, when they portray this. I, I want to see this portrayed. But... What does it mean for us today? Well, we reflect back on what was accomplished by the triumphal entry. And for those of us who have been believers, you know, it, it's pretty much a no-brainer. God fulfilled his word. 
He prophesied that this would happen, and it came to fruition. And it was prophesied hundreds of years before it was to take place to give people plenty of warning. The metaphors, the similitudes, all of that, the foreshadowing, it was all there so they could have known exactly when he was going to show up. Also, that he was faithful to bring to the Jews their Messiah at the appointed time. We, we understand that, so God is faithful. Now, because of this act and a multitude of others, we can trust that he will continue to fulfill his word. We know what is ahead of us. Just like the Jews, they, I believe, many of them knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but because of the pressure of the leaders, they kept their mouth shut. They didn't say anything. And remember, that's why Nicodemus had to come at night in John chapter 3, because he feared the other Jewish leaders. So when the human race finds itself under the same kind of conditions with the same promises and we are dwelling in the midst of suffering, sin, and death, all these things were characteristics of where the Jews were living. Remember Pilate, I talked about Pilate and the people that he killed and the, the iron fist that the Romans had back then. You know, the Jews in Jerusalem were under great stress and persecution. The first advent of Jesus showed the way that ultimately reverses that and it comes after we die if we endure patiently. <clears throat> Let me clarify what that means. Jesus showed up, fulfilled the prophecy. The reason he showed up was to offer a way of salvation for us. And he wanted to let everybody know this was the time. This is the appointed person, Jesus, God in human form, in the flesh, on the donkeys, showing up. He wanted to make sure that the people had hope, that they were not just in despair. People who do not have God on the inside, the Holy Spirit dwelling, they fear death. Now, even some believers fear death, but perfect love casts out fear. If you're dwelling in Christ, that fear goes away. And even though there's a momentary time of suffering when we die to some degree, all of us, we want to die in our sleep, right? We just want to go in our sleep. But if that doesn't happen, it's usually for all of us. What are the two leading causes? It's heart disease and cancer, those two things. One of them is going to take most all of us. We could go buy something else, but usually that's going to take us. And we kind of fear that. Well, we shouldn't fear that. What we fear most is the suffering. And Jesus really just says that what we suffer here is just light and momentary compared to what lasts in eternity. And Jesus wants to give us that light and momentary reprieve that will last forever that suffering is going to go away and this, this gives us hope because of what he did we have hope we go oh we have something to look forward to it's it's going to be great it's going to be good for us there are so many things that are so much better for us ahead and it is salvation and it's not given to anyone or everyone excuse me it's given to only particular people who say I want to be saved I want to go to heaven and they confess Jesus is Lord and of course you know Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 and so if we do that if we have that hope we are called then to walk by faith that faith is based on the hope we have an example that has been given to us 2,000 years ago so applying this even closer are you stressed by what's going on in the world I mean you look around 
All you have to do is read the news. And you just, what in the world is going on? I mean, it's just, do people really think this is good? That this is, it's going to turn out well. Everything that the world is involved in right now, the, the globalists, the pandemic, the economy, all of that stuff, worldwide tremors. I mean, just problems economically, politically, the, the world physically. You look at that and go, oh, whoa, this is a wild ride. And how is this going to end? It's not going to end well. And I, I think it just continues. But we have hope. It's like you're... You're the oak tree in the middle of the storm. You're stable. You don't have to worry about what's ahead. Uh, do you see the demise of our country? You know, some people, they just wrote that uh, we have just stepped over into tyranny. We'll see if we have. We'll see if there's a reprieve on that. And do you see the increase in violence and destruction? We, we see all of that. And we don't know what is caused by people and what God is allowing to take place. But do you fear what is to come? We shouldn't fear. Perfect love casts out fear. That's First John chapter 4, verse 8. But I want to leave you with this before we receive communion. I heard this this week. And I looked it up. I thought it was just a great quote. I think I've heard it before. And it is, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered. No one was there. That's where we need to be. You know, if we're fearing, if you have faith, there's no reason to fear what lies ahead. That's why Jesus came to give us hope, to walk in faith based in hope that there is something that lies ahead and he is the triumphant king, not of this world, but of the world to come and he reigns in our hearts. That's the message of the triumphal entry. Now what we're going to do at this time is we're going to uh, have Kim come up. She's going to play a song. We're going to receive communion. The ushers will take what we have here, both the, the cup and the bread. They'll separate them. And you know the routine. Let the song start to play. Just ask Jesus to forgive you your sin. Give thanks to him for what he did in that sacrifice. And next week we'll talk about the resurrection after the crucifixion. And as Kim is playing, again, ask for forgiveness of sins that you've committed and ask for help in walking the Christian life, being uh, those who walk in the sanctification that he gives to us. And also just give him thanks for the sacrifice that he gave for us.